Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 17, How the Art Heals the Mind and Enhances Our Overall Well-Being and Life Satisfaction. So a friend and colleague of mine uh, from where I teach at Champlain College sent me an article along just thinking of you, and I, of course I jumped in to check it out, and it's amazing, you know, we keep saying this, that the universe just kind of when we're receptive, like this open baseball glove stuff just comes right to you, you know, via somebody else or whatever like that. And I was thinking about the next podcast and this or that. And then I read this and I was like, you know, aha moment, light bulb. Let's talk about how art heals because art is so incredibly healing. And if you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to listen to this one. I'm not creative. Of course you are. We're all creative. Again, it's about being receptive. It's also about it's not always so deep. It, it's a time thing too. In order to allow, you know, in order for creativity to happen, there are certain things that need to be in place. One of them is creating, quote unquote, the time to let those creative juices just flow. Also to, you know, minimize distractions, be in a simple environment. Bah, 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 bah. We'll all get to that in, in just a little bit. You know, but for those of you, uh, you know, say we'll say closet creators or Creatives in denial, that's a good one too. Of course you're creative. We're all creative. And and especially, uh, you know, like Ben Franklin says, right? Necessity is a mother of invention. When we're pushed to create and problem solve, we definitely find a way to do it. And think about a class of kindergartners wildly finger painting on a table, not too concerned with where it's going or what it's looking like or anything like that. And if, if any one of us went up and asked this class one at a time, are you creative? Right away, you, you would get an enthusiastic yes, and or they would they might pull you, you know, along with their paint covered hand over to the table and just show you with a big huge smile on this fabulous product that they have just come up with. They would not doubt for one second that they are creative. So obviously, you know, something is lost there along the way. It's let's say misplaced. You know, because any part of our authentic selves is never uh, really lost, just misplaced and, you know, covered up and maybe being masked by defense mechanisms or, uh, you know, whatever like that. And do you know that the older I get in my wonderfully seasoned 56 years, it becomes more and more clear to me how important it is to truly meet people where they are, not just say it or think we are, but actually really connect with them exactly where their own headspace is. And that's, that's, that's kind of like a simple yet profound sort of statement, right? Because I think we often walk around thinking we're doing that, myself included. And, you know, we can really, it becomes very apparent when we actually do because, you know, sort of the aha light bulb epiphany thing is just so evident when we really truly connect with someone exactly in the, in the, in the, in the place where they are in their lives. And art is, I can't even, I don't know if I can think of a better way to meet people where, where they are than meeting, you know, um, you know, with the art thing, the art as a medium, as a vehicle. And certainly we're going to discuss, you know, uh, you know, really any way to, to sort of uh, rewire our limbic systems into being calmer, no matter how we do that, it's advantageous, right? Because um, neurons that wire together, fire together, and we can get unstuck from our emotional wounds, even amp it up to, you know, all, you know, full, full blown trauma. We can heal from all of that. So we'll get into the brain's neuroplasticity 
also. However, for right now, really the number one jumping out at me about art is that we can't do it wrong. We can think we do it wrong, which is just, you know, all kinds of messages from wherever, right? In reality, this is, you know, our own creation coming through. It cannot be wrong. You can draw inside the lines. You can draw outside the lines. You can, whatever colors you want, whatever mediums you want, art cannot be wrong. You know, that also may sound simple yet profound. I cannot tell you how far that takes my students. And I'll tell you how, um, when we talk about mindfulness, which also goes with arts, we're kind of feeding two birds with one hand here. We, as you, as you're all aware at this point, I teach mindfulness in every single one of my classes, cognitive psychology, Minecraft, and whatever else I may need, need to teach. And the very first day, and you just watch them kind of looking around because they don't know what to expect. And, oh, here we go. Going to be touchy-feely, blah, blah, blah. It's amazing how they come around with it. And by the end of the semester, they love it. And one of the big reasons why, and I watch their faces when I say this, realize you can't do it wrong. And in an age where, especially our young adult population, which is the most anxious and depressed group of young adults the United States has ever seen, for sure, to, to be able to hear and know there's something you can take on that you can't do wrong just immediately grabs their attention. I mean, I can't screw this up. I can't screw this up, especially a lot of them recovering perfectionists and things like that. No, you cannot screw up being mindful. If you start to slide into, you know, all kinds of intrusive, intrusive thoughts, you know, working their way, way in, well, you just regroup and get back at it. Well, art isn't different. Art is something we can all do that we can't do wrong. It's just, it's just our, you know, it's just an expression of self that can't be wrong. And right there, just that part of art is so incredibly, incredibly healing. And then of course we, you know, uh, take a peek at how mindfulness works in and mindfulness is about being in the moment. Right. And so is, so is art. Art is about being in the moment right here, right now. And Remember from earlier episodes and with the obsessive compulsive thinking or um, whether you have any of that or you don't, any just say regular preoccupations, regular, one of my young adult children likes to call it normal stress because she doesn't like the word anxiety. So you've got normal stress and it's in a, it immediately brings you back into the moment. So if we're 100% committed to being in this moment, I don't care who's diagnosed with what on the anxiety spectrum. I, this is what I say to my students, unless you're being beaten with a spiked club, which I don't see, you're not anxious if you're 100% committed to this moment. And art also does that for us, especially when we can really get in the groove and, and, and you know, loosen up and be there. And part of this is just art as it is. And part of this is also, third point we're going to bring up here, is the tactile nature of art. So, again, the finger, the finger painting with the kindergartners or finger painting at 56. I'm a big fan. The, the, it helps. It actually, from a tactile perspective, can be very soothing. It can also go the other way. Somebody has sensory issues, what they, which means they just choose a different medium. For most of us, that, that tactile sensation is not only soothing, but it brings the brain, neurologically speaking, draws attention away from wherever the mind went to next Tuesday or 10 years ago or, you know, whatever. For a kindergartner, you know, this, somebody had a Twinkie that they wanted or whatever, Right. It takes our mind away from that place while we're sculpting or painting or doing whatever and brings it right back into to the here and now. And that extra sensory push really helps bring the mind back into 
the present moment, to experience the power of now. Okay, point four. I'm also thinking about my students. Again, I have mostly first years, not not all first years, first years, but mostly they're in the 18, 19 area. And I think about, you know, this this wonderful country of ours in, in the States. We are very achievement oriented. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I have quite a work ethic myself. And however, it can be too much. And I know that at least with my own students, uh, and I've got quite a few of them, actually this semester, four, four wonderful, wonderfully large classes. I'm quite in, in touch with them, quite in tune with them, love them, you know, love what I do, which hopefully they pick up on. And uh, they, they are, they are so, they have a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of stress. And a lot of it is, they'll talk about it, the pressure. It's, I would say the majority of it is about feeling the need to produce and, you know, however, whatever that means might be to um, make sure they don't disappoint their parents. It might be so they don't disappoint themselves. Again, I've usually have a handful of recovering perfectionists and it's about produce, produce, produce. And, you know, um, and, and moving along the timeline in college and having the right major and the job and, and then the, do I make enough money? And then all the what if thinking starts and all the not enough thinking starts. And it's very much directly connected to achievement. And the beauty with art, this is point number five, I lost track now. Point number five, I think, is that, is that art, even though there there is an end product often, it's not about that though. It's about the process. When somebody is really immersed in art, they often don't even know where they're going. You know, it, um, you know, it's not, you know, most of us aren't out to, you know, kind of come up with this, you know, another rendition of the statue of David. We usually jump right in to do whatever we're doing. And even if there is, let's say it's somebody's job to be in, in, uh, you know, creative media and design and marketing or whatever like that, they still might have guidelines that whoever's asking them to create blah, 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 for whatever product, they still don't know exactly where it's going to go because, Art takes twists and turns all over the place. That's one of the wonderful things about art because it's just these creative juices. I like to believe in the creator of all things myself just are coming from somewhere, let's say the universe, and they're rolling through us as this vehicle and they're being splattered out on paper, splattered out in a, in a film or a podcast or a conversation or a fantastic, um, you know, dinner presentation or whatever, a fantastic haircut, a fantastic tattoo, you know, whatever. It's coming from someplace and it's about the process. And actually that, that tattoo uh, thought, this is my own squirrel thinking, because if you don't know by now, I'm a web thinker. Um, uh, my, my best friend from growing up is a, is a tattoo artist. And though I'm personally not into tattoos, I have such an appreciation for the work she does. And I know that she has a, you know, a, a, kind of like a basic design and tries to meet people where they are. And she also really connects with them emotionally because that's important to her too. She also knows that it, you know, she gets and hits a bump and she just twists and turns with it. And she's got, she's amazingly ta- talented. And uh, she also does pastels. But the point is art goes any which way, but loose, right? We don't really know. So it's about the process. This feeds into the mindfulness and this fields feel sorry, feeds into the, the fact that we can't do art wrong. And I love that. And for somebody who's walking around very shame-based, which uh, many of us are, this right here in a nutshell is how art can be incredibly healing. Because not only can we not do something wrong, 
we or we can't make a mistake doing art. We all this also means we can't be that mistake. Okay, moving into point number six. Again, I'm not linear, so I might say six or seven twice, or who knows, and who cares? It's just another point, right? So as far as the um, healing, healing the shame, now obviously it's more complicated than this. Disclaimer doesn't you know, mean to not do professional treatment or if somebody needs medication. Nobody's saying that. Yet when we're walking around shame-based and we're immersing ourselves in art, it's about the process and self-expression. Slowly, that person who may be walking around with such defenses up, if you remember all the hiding places shame can hide, it can hide as arrogance, it can hide as elitism, it can hide as all kinds of things. If somebody's down on their self-worth due to shame and they come up with something fabulous, again, it only matters what you like. And it's just a bonus if somebody else walks by and says, wow, right? It really can only go good places. So these defenses that aren't healthy, right, can begin to fade, fade away. And therefore, when we become more unguarded in a healthy way, you know, that means, you know, with safe people and all of that, not letting our guard down when we're still, you know, vulnerable and in a fragile emotional place. When we're, you know, getting in a better place, when we when we can drop the shield, metaphorically speaking, we, you know, the love comes in and we grow and, it, and all the all the beautiful colorfulness of our lives, you know, can come back metaphorically because art is so colorful. I didn't even plan that. That was good. Okay, I think this was point number seven. I guess I'm not great with the numerical lineage here. Um, it, so that rolls us right into, let's just say point number seven, or maybe 7.5, <clears throat> that because it helps us to, uh, you know, drop the unnecessary unhealthy defenses and kind of bring the walls down, it also helps us to see who we are. Because when we've been bottled up and bottled up and blocked off, we can really lose track of who we even are. I don't know if you can be, you know, 25, not that I think we, any of us know who we are, 25, truthfully, but this is my opinion. Let's say 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 on up. We can now really um, kind of get in touch with our authentic self and see who we truly are. And of course, this can be true for any of us who have, you know, kind of misplaced our authentic self along the way for just a gamut of reasons. And one example I'm thinking of just in the moment, because it's just really clear, is anybody who's gotten you know, wrapped up in a struggle with addiction because, you know, anybody who, who's a, um, a therapist or works within the addictions field knows that somebody can walk in who's, you know, 45, 55 or whatever. And one of the first questions, you know, an addictions counselor will ask in the intake is what age did you start using? Because somebody could have six PhDs or whatever and be super intelligent, not that I'm saying education necessarily makes us, you know, we, the ultimate kinds of intelligence. So I want to make sure I cover myself there for sure, because I really believe that. The person who's 50 or whatever, and addicted, who started using at 12, well, guess what? Guess where they are emotionally? That 50-year-old is 12. And so that's one of the first questions that a good addictions counselor will ask. And again, in no way are we saying making, you know, Painting a picture is going to just heal that. That's not what we're saying at all. However, it can be a very, very solid therapeutic tool to complement the talk therapy and all the spiritual work that goes along with addiction or any or any kind of healing. You know, I know for my for myself, you know, we with our five wonderful now young adult children. 
my husband and I consciously chose. I wanted to be home with them. Even I, of course, I kept a, a foot in doing something here and there. Basically, I was home 98% of the time and loved every minute of it. I wouldn't change anything. And I will also admit for sure with, with 100% honesty that, you know, part of me wanted just a little something, you know, for me. And I think I was in my 30s. I don't remember. They were all still young. We were flying around to baseball games, just really in that kind of nutty you know, very, a lot of buzz, a lot of buzz going on. Again, fabulous. I wouldn't change anything. I loved being home with my kids. And I, I forget, I got into decoupaging and uh, my grandparents were incredibly artistic. My grandmother, you know, painted, my grandfather was an architect and I don't know, maybe it came from, from the, from the gene. I don't know, but I got into decoupaging chairs and then it didn't take long before it kind of like I, it was like, it picked up momentum. And so I would go get some chair from a yard sale, sand it down. And I just bought paint and started doing the 3d thing. And I learned how to make mountains out of, um, you know, uh, I would get toilet paper a little bit wet and mix Elmer's glue and then paint. And they, so I had these chairs had 3d stuff all over them with loads of color. And then I ended up making one for each child in the family and my husband all related to what their personality was. So, for example, mine was winter, and it I had skiers, and I had mountains, and I had the gorgeous colors of actually like today, a very chilly January day with the blue skies. And I got so into this, so into it that I would get up early before the kids were awake, late at night when my husband was watching television. I'd be over in the corner with newspapers spread all over, and wow! And it wasn't you know so much um, related to any any of the. Oh, actually, no, don't even say that. It did. Of course, it helped bring anxiety down or just or just calmer. And for me, though, it was about having something of my own that I could just disappear into. It didn't have it couldn't didn't have to be right or wrong. It didn't I didn't care about the product. And I got in what uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi would uh, refer to as flow. Flow is when you lose track of time, you lose track of who you are in a good way meaning there's no one else you'd want to be and nowhere else you'd want to be. But right in that moment, then all of a sudden I'd look at the clock and like three hours went by and I had this chair and then I'd have to kind of stop because it was getting late and I didn't want to and, you know, put all the tops on the cans and everything. And wow, I did that for, I don't even know, probably a few years, started making them for friends and it was just having a grand old time. And it really did it for me as far as scratching that itch of having something that was, that was mine. That was just for me. It worked. The art therapy, self-therapy really worked. Okay. So let's say that leads to 0.8.5 or wherever we are. So what that did for me is I, as I got, I, I don't even know if I realized I had lost touch with myself a little bit. I did because I was, again, it was good stuff all being so immersed in my kids and we're also very rural. And in case you can't tell, I don't know from this podcast, I am really social. And I have, you know, good friends around, like my closest women friends at that time were 45 minutes away. And we got together with kids and stuff. But we, it was obviously difficult to get away just us, which we did a couple times a year. But as far as a day-to-day and kind of thing, it really did help me to reconnect with my own self. So that leads to 0.8.5, to 0.8.5 which we'll just say alignment. And again, that's one of the main... Um, one of the main sort of, I would say goals, themes, something we're working towards in Minecraft is alignment, meaning having the insides match the outsides. And we can really tell when we're out of, out of alignment. Just like my chiropractor cousin, um, Jimmy, 
my cousin, the chiropractor, would talk about alignment, you know, obviously related to vertebrae. And he would say shoulders over hips, over heels. And, you know, sort of the, the um, well-being or positive psychology, you know, um, perspective of that is having our insides match our outside. So, you know, how we're thinking and feeling match what we're doing on the outside. And art can really kind of, let's say, straighten us up in that way. Okay, so getting, you know, to point 9.5, and again, I'm a web thinker, so one's just rolling into the next, like, dominoes. They may not be in any kind of order for you. You may be, you might sort of identify or relate more to one than the other. It's totally fine. And right now where my mind went is actually way back when I was therapizing and way back a few decades ago, 90s, yeah, mid-90s, early 90s, something. Um, And I worked with, at that time, small kids. And though I wouldn't say, I definitely would not identify as an art therapist. However, I had little kids, so I just did whatever I needed to do. And also teenagers, and I worked at that time, because I've done addictions and other stuff too. At that time, I was mainly the child person on the team. So I worked with, uh, my youngest client was three, and and then I had like a five-year-old, a lot of teenagers. And I would do therapy in a very non-conventional manner. With my ADHD crew, which was a lot of them. I'd be up, I literally could be found in a tree up high with somebody or underneath a coffee table or anywhere. And with my young ones, I didn't have a lot of five and threes, but sadly, uh, I had a couple of horrific and emphasis on horrific sexual abuse cases with really little kids. One was three and I'm thinking of another one, five and another one was seven. These are the worst ones I had. So obviously when anyone has experienced full-blown trauma, they have also, especially a child when they're in that, have lost their voice, obviously, and therefore their choice. And kids in general don't have a big voice or choice because of the nature of being a child. Hopefully a good parent tries to allow for the voice and choice within within choices. Obviously we can't just re- let them, you know, have it all. We need to be, we need to be in control, but obviously we want to really encourage their voice and encourage their choice within the context of whatever the situation is, right? So when a child is traumatized, they don't have that. They expect that they don't have that. They don't even think they have a voice. They also lose eye contact. You know, a child who's, who's super trusting, let's say neurotypical, because if we get into autism and that, that would change that, which we are going to go there soon. So I'm thinking with this, I'm thinking with this one kid and then the other, the other child, so young, you know, three-year-old and five-year-old, what I did in there qualified for art therapy for me, I guess. I had a creepy crawler's machine. I don't know if any of you out there know what that is. Kind of like back then, everything was so gender polarized. Girls got easy bake ovens, a pink little oven that you could put in your room and make, you know, expensive brownies with in a little pan. And boys got creepy crawlers, which I much would have preferred. But this was great because you plugged it into the wall and there were four, you know, the, the primary colors, you know, uh, green, blue, red, and yellow, right? And little trays with scorpions and spiders. And you could, so you could squeeze the stuff like a toothpaste tube into the, into there. So here's the thing. I started that, I think, as somebody, it wasn't my idea, but one of my colleagues might've mentioned, I don't even remember, but wow, did I see, it was creepy crawler therapy. And wow, was it successful? Not just with the three and the five-year-old, but also with even up eight, nine, 10, and, and I thought, wow. And so the therapy would go on for 50 minutes, mostly for children, the 50 minute window is a, a big one. And it, interestingly, they slowly 
tended to take up that whole entire time with these creepy crawlers. So here's why. There, we have the mindfulness thing. They're in the moment. It's tactile. They could also um, have a voice. And this sounds may sound so small, but it isn't when you've experienced the horrific things these two children experienced that I can't get into right now. Horrible. They, had, they got to have a voice because they got to pick the colors. They got to pick the bug. They got to, to turn on the machine, put it in, and watch it through the little window to watch it be done. Another bonus to the creepy crawlers is that they don't take very long. I forget the minutes, but we did it during the therapy session. So they got two, even though it's not about the finished product, they did have one. If they didn't like it, they could make another one next week and they could look forward to it. It was beautiful. Such a beautiful thing. And when they left with the little scorpion or tarantula or beetle or whatever it was that they created with their own voice and their own choice, this was also a connection like an, uh, a, a tangible connection to the therapist and the, and the counseling session, which also enhanced trust and all of this stuff. Um, just amazing. And also from a psychological standpoint, uh, Piaget, for those of you who might know Piaget, the developmental psychologist, those little kids on the three, five end were in the formal operation stage of development. So that means, I'm oh, sorry, formal. Oh my gosh. Meant concrete. Erase, erase, delete, delete, delete. Concrete, I'm sorry. Concrete operation stage of development, which means, you know, they, they're, a five-year-old isn't even capable of thinking abstractly. So when they have a tangible, you know, little tarantula or bug that enhance their voice and choice and trust in this, in this clinician and in the therapy process, that's huge because that concrete connection is exactly where they are developmentally. And I'll tell you another bonus, which will lead us into 10.5 or 10.75 or whatever, is these little kids. I'm thinking of the little three-year-old, uh, her, she at the moment. Um, oh, my gosh, it's an amazing little girl. And so, so, so smart. Uh, and she was horribly penetrated by her father at you know, three and a half years old and just, just terrible. And obviously no eye contact and didn't want to talk. And what's great when not, with the creepy crawlers thing, or, or it could be another form, but this is what I did. We also, I also did things with puppets and other things, but the creepy crawlers thing, she, when they're making a bug, they obviously have to focus on making the bug. So it makes it acceptable to not have eye contact. I mean, with children, that was always acceptable to me anyway, but it's, they kind of can just be immersed in it. And they actually just start to, the floodgates open and they just start talking to you. They just would talk and out of it all come. They were, she was bottled up like nothing. And she would just, it just began to flow and flow. And then more trust, more trust because they get immersed in what they're doing. Kind of forget like they're, that they're talking to you. Kind of like when you're driving teenagers around in the back seat. And after a while, they, they forget that you're in the front seat and you can hear them. And they're talking about everything you probably really don't want to know in the back because they forget. Well, that's the same effect with art. And I also found that to be true with teenagers in a different in a different sense, with um, doing art or doing something that can something that they could occupy them in therapy. They were much more apt to talk when they didn't have to make eye contact. And this brings us to point eleven or eleven point two five or whatever with the eye contact thing. And I think I've mentioned before that our oldest daughter's on on the spectrum and she's not like the words high functioning. She would like to or identify as Asperger's needless to say, we've had lots of talks 
about the eye contact thing and how those on the spectrum, or she'll say the Asperger's community, which she likes better, have been basically for, actually our, that daughter did a TED talk on this, if any of you are interested in watching that. Uh, she talks a lot about how um, the autistics, she likes that, she said that words, that's how they prefer to be um, addressed as well. The autistics have been forced basically by the world to live in this neurotypical, you know, in this neurotypical reality, this neurotypical world, living with all these social norms that make absolutely no sense to them and are oftentimes uncomfortable. And eye contact is one of them. And I remember myself being taught at a young age, eye contact, eye contact, interviews eventually when you're older, it shows you're confident, you know, all these things. And definitely in the business world, because looking to the side looks like your self-esteem's in the tank, you're not confident, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, that may all be true in the neurotypical, you know, uh, planet neurotypical, let's say, but that certainly is not true for those who uh, had the gift of autism. And they're not comfortable with, with eye contact. And, you know, when they're made to be to conform to the world, they, they're not usually very thrilled with that. And it doesn't usually last very long. And I'll tell you, in therapy, um, this is a fabulous thing because those social norms go out the window when you're doing something with creepy crawlers or any of the other, any other, all the other drawing stuff. I also had games in there that worked too, as long as they were just fidgety, fidgety type uh, mind tricks and not um, monopoly because I would take their mind off of it, but you know, game like Rubik's cubes, that kind of thing. Um, they, they have the, they have this, you know, get out of jail free card as far as the eye contact thing, which is so painful for many people on, on the, or with the gift of autism. And that also works for that particular crew. And, you know, point 11.5, 12.5 or 13.2 or whatever, uh, if we think of, you know, stay with a neurodiverse population like myself with attention, uh, you know, I like to say attention surplus, high energy gift it's instead of ADHD, which is a complete misnomer. In a way, just like when I was therapizing up in the trees and under coffee tables and uh, those of us speaking of social norms that, you know, certainly I've had shame around. Why can't you relax? I am relaxing. I'm skiing or I'm running or I'm moving around in the backyard with the goats. That's how I relax. Not, not everybody sits on, you know, relaxes sitting on the couch watching TV or sitting anywhere. And personally, I think sitting is overrated. So when we kind of when we kind of bust out of those out of social norm jail, especially if, if you're a counselor or a therapist, with doing creepy cars, climbing it, climbing up in trees, um, you know, embracing these other mediums for self-expression. Uh, you know, the vehicles, the, the doors to healing just swing open wide. And just like we bring creativity, like we're talking about now, into all these other things, creativity can come into therapy. Obviously, getting creative with therapy opens the door for healing. So that said, point 14, let's just say, art get art can get us unstuck. So if we brought up autism, we brought up brought up um, ADHD, hopefully we're referring as ASHG, or, you know, many other ways to be stuck. And we talked about the whole trauma thing. So um, we can, again, meant to be a complement to other things. With the trauma thing, art can really, really, really be, be an amazing, amazing therapeutic tool. Again, thera- you know, formally therapeutic in a counseling session or just home or and home because, 
art soothes, soothes the, the limbic system. Any way that we learn how to relax the limbic system is a good thing. And we can rewire the brain through repetition of whatever it is that's, that's therapeutic and healthy for us. And so learning how to calm down via art can only go everywhere good. So remember, there's the voice and the choice piece. There's also the neuroplasticity because we've talked about in numerous episodes, podcast episodes, because and the cognitive psychologist in me comes out because I love talking about neurons. The, the more repetition we have with doing art, doesn't need to be the same art. It just needs to be the same, you know, doing art and having that tactile sensation, um, depending on which one you might want. Some people have sensory issues. Certainly the, the autistics do. To find that art that works for you and stay with it because by calming that limbic, limbic system down, we can actually be released from being stuck in trauma. Again, meant to compliment other things. And because for those of you who have listened to some of the things we've talked about on tra- with trauma is that the limbic system is more primal, more primitive, if you, if you will, than the neocortex of the frontal, the frontal lobe. Our frontal lobe has to do with our higher reasoning processes, referred to as metacognition, right? That's our judgment and reasoning and decision-making and problem-solving and planning, ability to control impulses and all that. When somebody's stuck in trauma, they're not accessing the neocortex very easily. In fact, they're pretty much trapped in the limbic system, which is why they're often feeling threatened when they're on the couch in their living room or dorm or wherever, even though that threat isn't imminent. If they're stuck there, they're still feeling it. And another way art can be highly beneficial is because the limbic system, when it's stuck in that, we're stuck in trauma or survival brain, I like to say, we are basically offline from the frontal lobe. So all that rational thinking or higher thinking that's talking us down that, you know, this, we're in our living room, we're safe now, there's a cup of tea here, we're not really being threatened. That rational voice is offline. So instead, we remain feeling, you know, hypervigilant and tight in the chest and, you know, very, 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 very anxious and trapped in the limbic system. And here's the thing, the limbic system is not talked down into a place of calm with language. The limbic system does not respond very well to language. The limbic system responds well to to more tactile soothing and making sure we're, and also getting into the body, like uh, yoga and things like that. And art is a beautiful way to help somebody get reacquainted with um, their neocortex and to help get back online with that rational uh, neocortex frontal lobe part of us that is better able to talk ourselves away and make good judgments, solid sound judgments, and make decisions and solve problems with more clarity and more accuracy and more efficiency and more happiness. All right. So here, here are the bullets in the bowl. The main theme Minecrafters today is, you know, any way for us, any healthy way, healthy way for us to calm down the limbic system can only go to all places. Good. We are better able to focus, better able to make decisions better for the others in our lives, better parents, better partners, better friends, better siblings, better daughters and sons, because we're our better selves. If that's just how it is. We are obviously therefore happier. Um, our well-being is enhanced. We are more satisfied with our lives. Optimal human 
functioning is what we're talking about. In art, regardless of whether you think you're creative or not, doesn't matter. You know, sort of embracing art in our lives can really and truly be a very effective path to calming, calming down the mind and, and um, you know, releasing ourselves from being anxious and even stuck in the limbic system overdrive. Uh-huh.